So today we are continuing our series that we began uh, late last year. You can, you can scoot your chairs back around. By the way, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors here at Mosaic, uh, and uh, it's an honor to be with you. I've been away for a little bit. Uh, my family went to Vermont for the holiday, uh, but we got back on Wednesday, so we're, we're glad uh, to be back with you guys. So we are resuming our series through the book of Esther. Uh, we started it in November, I believe, uh, and it's a series called Rage of Nations, uh, and we're studying through the book of Esther together. Today, we are up to Esther chapter 7. We have two sermons left in the book of Esther this week and then next week, uh, and then two weeks from now, we'll begin a study through the book of James. So I want to invite you to turn to page 437 in those black uh, Bibles that are near you, that are on the chair. If you brought your own Bible, I have no idea what page number it is, sorry, uh, but you could probably figure that out uh, on your own. Uh, but if you're using one of the ones uh, on the chairs there, it's page number, I believe, 437. That should be Esther chapter 7. Is that the right number? Somebody there? Do I have the right number? Okay, thank you, Ina. Ina said I have the right number. So Esther chapter 7. We're going to read the text, uh, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll dive into it together. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. I'll read. You can follow along. It says, The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If... I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty. And if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked, Queen Esther, who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there is a gallows, 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Over the Christmas holiday, Sonia and I, usually every night after we would get the kids to bed, we would watch Netflix with my in-laws. And one of the movies that we watched uh, over this holiday uh, was a movie called Seven Days in Entebbe. Uh, inspired by a true story. I don't know if it was all how factual it all was, but um, I did. I looked it up so that I could give you the, the story, the real story, not just the movie story. 
but seven days in Entebbe is based on this um, hijacking that occurred of an Air France airline um, where some Palestinian and German revolutionaries hijacked a French passenger plane that had about 100 Jewish um, passengers on the plane. The plane was diverted first to Benghazi, where it was refueled, and then it flew to Entebbe in Uganda, where the dictator Idi Amin was waiting for these hijackers. They eventually let all the French passengers go. They eventually let all the other European passengers go. At one point, before they had released all the other passengers, they separated everyone. Jewish people in this room, non-Jewish people in this room. Now, this was, of course, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, not long after the Holocaust. And the emotions that must have been coursing through the, vein, through the, through the hearts of those Jewish people as they're being seemingly cold and moved into this other room and everyone else is being set free. I can just imagine the feelings of fear, frustration, anger, rage. Why can't our government do something to save us? And indeed, the government of Israel was working on it. There were negotiations and there were heated debates about how much Israel should negotiate to get the hostages back or, or should they just send in commandos and try to save them all. And while these debates were playing out, there were seven days in Entebbe where these hostages were forced to wait. And their lives are hanging in the balance. Eventually, the Israeli commandos came in. There were about 100 of them. They landed in the night, stormed the airline terminal, and rescued just over 100 hostages. Four of the hostages died. 102 survived. It was a brilliant rescue operation. It's controversial, as most of those sorts of things are. But 100 people's lives were saved. 100 Jews who were deemed unworthy of life, at least by their captors. Hostages who for seven days had to wait in the face of racist and anti-Semitic attacks, wondering, will justice ever come? Will justice ever come for us? Will justice ever come for our people? That's the situation that I imagine Esther and her people are feeling right now. Because if you recap the last two days of the biblical story, there's been a whole lot of stuff that's been packed in the last two days. It's the last two chapters, and that's what Sean preached on uh, right before uh, Christmas. Chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Esther record the previous two days of the story, right? And what happens is that Queen Esther has decided that she is going to come out of the shadow. She's going to identify as a Jew, as she truly is, and she's going to fight for her people's survival because there's a genocide planned and all the Jewish people are going to be wiped out in the kingdom of Persia. So she decides to take her stand. So they fast, they pray, they, they fast and pray for several days, and then she comes to the king. And she doesn't ask for her people's salvation. Instead, she says, you want to go to dinner? She says, I want to throw a feast. 
and I want you to come, and I want you to bring Haman. Now, Haman was the enemy of the Jewish people. Haman was the one who was planning to wipe out all the Jews in Persia. He was like the hijackers there in Entebbe. So the king said, okay, sure. I like dinner with my wife. So, so they went and they had this feast. And he said, what is it that you want? Why did you want to see me? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And he said, what I want is to have dinner with you tomorrow night. Now, when I'm reading the story, I'm a little bit frustrated. I'm like, come on, Esther, get to the point, right? Your people's lives are hanging by a thread. But apparently, she knows that he's not ready yet. I think, more importantly, God knows that something has to happen that night to prepare his heart. And so when we keep reading the story of Esther 5 and 6, what happens is Haman leaves the party. He gets really ticked off at this guy named Mordecai, who's been prominent in the story so far. And he builds a gallows to hang and impale Mordecai. And then he goes to bed. But the king can't sleep. The king goes and he finds the, the record books for his kingdom. And he's reading and he, and he reads about this coup that was foiled, where some, some guys in the palace were trying to take over, they are trying to knock off the king. And he's like, who foiled that assassination plot? Who was this guy named Mordecai? Well, have we done anything to celebrate Mordecai? Have we, have we given him prestige and honor? Have we properly thanked him for saving my kingdom? No, no, your majesty, we haven't done that. All right, well, we're gonna do that tomorrow. So Haman walks in to the palace the next morning, ready to ask the king to hang Mordecai. And the king's like, oh, there you are, Mordecai. Good. I want you to help me honor the hero Mordecai. And Haman is just flummoxed. He doesn't know what to do, but he has to obey the king. So he leads Mordecai around, and he celebrates what Mordecai has done on behalf of the king. Then he goes back home. And he's talking to his family. And they're super encouraging at the end of chapter 6. His wife says, yeah, you're pretty much doomed. Like we see, we see that, the, that the story is shifting. The winds are not in your favor anymore. These Jewish people are going to destroy you. That's what they say at the end of chapter 6. Which brings us to chapter 7. A lot has been packed into these two days. And there's this waiting going on. The Jewish people are scattered throughout the Persian kingdom. They're, they're probably on the outskirts of this fortress complex of Susa, and they're wondering what's going on inside the palace. Esther called us to fast. Esther called us to wait. Esther called us to beseech the God of Israel, but we don't know what's happening inside the palace. We don't know what's going on inside the fortress citadel. And they're waiting. I don't know about you, but waiting is hard. You wait for something that you that you like could be you know minor like our kids waiting for their christmas presents on christmas eve or it could be something more significant like you're waiting to find love or you're waiting for your boss to finally appreciate the work that you do or you're waiting for some major issue of injustice in your life or in society to be resolved and you feel frustrated you're waiting like those passengers in Entebbe waiting for seven days Esther and her people waited it wasn't fair it wasn't just but they had to wait 
And what they were going to discover is that God's justice is worth the wait. Look again at the story of chapter 7. It says the king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. I don't know what she served for dinner the second time around, but it must have been good. The king's in a good mood. And it says in verse 2, once again, on the second day, while drinking wine. Now, I think this is, this is interesting because what the writer of the book of Esther is trying to do is trying to connect this with what happened in chapter 1 with Vashti. Do you remember what happened in chapter 1 with Vashti? The king is drinking wine. He's been drinking it for seven days, and there's only one rule at this party, and the rule is that the, it's an unlimited bar, right? The tap is open, and it's going to stay open, and there's no stopping. That's his rule, okay? And the king is drunk. The king is, is full of wine, and he decides <clears throat> to exploit Queen Vashti in that moment. He decides to exercise his power over her, and he humiliates her. And, of course, she says no, and that sets up the entire Esther story. But what the writer is trying to do on a literary level is help us connect this with that. Once again, the queen, the queen is standing before the king with her fate in his hands, and he's holding a cup of wine, maybe feeling a little bit tipsy, maybe a little bit out of control. Of course, he thought he was in control. King Xerxes, that was his Greek name, he always thought he was in control. But I think the message, one of the messages of the book of Esther is that there is actually someone else in control. Just like the leaders of our country might think that they're in control. President Trump thinks he's in charge. Nancy Pelosi is the new speaker of the House. She thinks she has power. But all of their power is delegated authority. There is a king. There is a ruler behind all of it exercising ultimate authority just as there was in Persia. The king is drinking and a queen stands before him with her fate in his hands and she says, if I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, if I have found favor in your eyes. Well, we know that a long time before she had found favor in his eyes. And she had to do a lot. She had to compromise her ethics. She had to hide her Jewish identity. She had to go underground with her monotheism. The Jews worshipped only one God. The Persians worshipped many. She had to hide not just her Jewish ethnicity and culture, but her Jewish religion, which was the God of Israel. She had to hide all of that and say, no, 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 I don't believe in Yahweh. I worship Ishtar. I worship the gods and goddesses of Persia. She totally blends in to win this more sordid version of the Bachelorette contest in Persia. And she wins. She's found favor in the king's eyes, but that was years ago. Does she still find favor in his eyes? She's not sure. And she recognizes the stakes. It's not just her life hanging in the balance, but it's all her people. All the Jews of Persia are counting on her. And the king, thankfully, is in a good mood. He says, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom. This was a, uh, a typical way of, of uh, uh, using hyperbole back then. So he's not really offering her half the kingdom. That was a way of saying, hey, babe, what do you want? I'll give it to you. 
Okay? That's what he's saying. That's what he's doing in this moment. Whatever you seek, it will be done. And she says, if I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. I can imagine Xerxes being taken aback by that. Spare your life? I didn't know your life was in danger. You have a very comfortable life here in the palace in Susa. You have every luxury of modern Persia. You've got armed guards. You have the backing of the king. I'm the most powerful person in the world. What do you mean your life is in danger? But she continues. She says, and spare my people. This is my desire. And I imagine this probably as she's talking, this piques the curiosity of Xerxes. What do you mean your who are your people? Now, Persia was a very multicultural society, just like modern-day America. So there would have been a lot of different people groups and ethnicities and cultures represented in Persia. But the king didn't know which one she was. He didn't know that she was Jewish. She said, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. She uses three different words to really get the point across. Death, destruction, extermination. Do you get the point, Xerxes? It's really bad. And I really need your help. She said, you know, if we were merely, merely being sold into slavery, I probably wouldn't do anything about it. I wouldn't want to burden the king. She's buttering him up. She's flattering him here. Right? But it's not just slavery. We're going to be killed. Xerxes is angry. He speaks up, he interrupts her, and he says, Who is this? Where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Now, before we continue, put yourself in Haman's shoes. Haman's the guy who's been planning all this. Haman is the guy who talked the king into doing this. Now, interestingly, Xerxes has some blame in this. He's the one who passed the law or signed the edict, right? His name is the one on the law, but it was Haman's idea. And Esther, she's very cunning. She's very crafty. She doesn't blame Xerxes for this. She could have. But she probably knew that that wouldn't get her anywhere. So she blames Haman. Haman is not good for the Jews. Haman is not good for the kingdom of Persia. Haman is not good for the entire book of Esther portrays Xerxes as someone who is susceptible to influence. He doesn't seem to have an original thought in this book. All of his ideas come from his advisors or from one of his queens. And Esther uses that influence here. She says, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. And Haman is sitting there. His knees start shaking together. And he's terrified. Because... He has been a man consumed by rage. In fact, in Hebrew, and this book is written in Hebrew, the sound of his name sounds like the Hebrew word rage. So what the writer is trying to do is a, it's sort of like a pun here to help the original readers understand that, that Haman is full of rage, just like his name sounds. And there is rage just coursing and pulsating through this book. Rage is bubbling over from Haman's life, and of course it's all directed against the Jewish people, it's directed against God's people. 
But now Haman has been exposed. And he's standing there, suddenly fearing for his life. Esther says, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Now, King Xerxes doesn't say anything. He just walks out. Have you ever been too angry to say something and so you just walk out? That's kind of how I imagine this being. I don't know exactly why he walked out, but that's how I imagine it. That, that he's just too angry to say something. So he goes from where they're drinking wine and he goes into the garden. He goes into the palace garden. In the, in a, at Susa, they had these gardens all the way around the palace. And they had these big like pavilions in them, kind of like, kind of like gazebos. Um, and so there was like this huge, like expansive garden. And he, he goes for a walk in the garden. Let off some steam, figure out what he's going to do. And Haman is left with his new adversary. He's finally met an adversary more powerful than he. You see, Haman was used to having all the power. He was this important government official. Mordecai was underneath him. The Jews were underneath him. Everybody was underneath him. He was second only to Xerxes, except for maybe the queen. Esther may not have been in the chain of command of Persian government, but everybody knows the queen ain't happy, the king ain't happy, right? She has power, real power. Haman has run up against a foe who is more powerful than he, and he's terrified. So he approaches the queen. While the king is in the garden, letting off steam, figuring out what to do. Maybe he's punching things, he's so angry, I don't know. Queen Esther is in the palace. And Haman begins to plead for his life. Now, there was a rule back then that male workers in the palace had to stay seven feet away from members of the king's harem, which Queen Esther was sort of the, uh, she would have been the, at the top of the king's harem. Now, this was not a rule designed to protect and honor women. Far from it. Uh, instead, this was the king's way of ensuring that he got them all to himself. So every man who worked in the palace had to stay at least seven feet away from all of the king's women. Haman is desperate, though. He feels like he's about to lose his life. So he throws himself down upon the couch that she's reclining on. Back then, they didn't sit in chairs, right? They, they reclined at, at couches kind of lower to the ground. He throws himself down onto the couch next to her, and he begins to plead for his life. The Bible doesn't tell us what she says. Maybe she doesn't say anything. Maybe she just listens. I don't know. And the king walks back in, and he thinks that something far different is going on in this moment. And he says, will Haman now violate the queen even while I am in the house? And when he says that, everybody around, everybody around, the guards and everything, they're like, oh, time's up. So they cover his face and they march him out of there because his fate has been sealed. And the king says, okay, so what are we going to do? Because remember, the king doesn't have his own ideas in this book. He gets all his ideas from somebody else. So uh, there was a uh, Harbona, I think, is the name of the guy. Harbona in verse 9, one of the king's eunuchs, says there's a gallows. 75 feet tall, it's over at Haman's house, which is really weird. 
you build a gallows at your house? Like, I always imagined it being like in the town center or something, down by the park or by the river or something, in front of the palace to make a statement. No, this is at his house. He's got gallows at his house. Um, that would probably give me nightmares. But he's got gallows at his house. Harbona says, yeah, there's these 75-foot gallows down at his house. He just built them yesterday to kill Mordecai. And the king said, hang him on it. And the next verse says, rather matter-of-factly, they hanged Haman on the gallows. He had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Haman was a one was one who was consumed by rage. As I said, his rage against the Jews pulsates and seeds throughout this book. But at the end of this chapter, everything is flipped. The king is the one raging. He's raging against Haman. And it takes Haman's death for the king's anger to subside. And then once again, we are left waiting. The adversary has been dealt a fatal blow. But there's still this law. There's still this law in the kingdom of Persia that says that a certain amount of time from now, every Jewish person, including Esther, will be destroyed. Part of the problem has been fixed, but not the entire problem. The Jewish people have maybe some hope now where they didn't have hope before, but there is still uncertainty about their faith. Will the king undo the law? Is it possible for the king to undo the law? Back then they had some pretty strict rules and you couldn't always undo a law. So what are they going to do? Are we truly going to survive? Or are we just going to have to be content that if we go down, Haman goes down with us? And at the end of chapter 7, we're left almost where we were at the beginning of chapter 7. We're left waiting. Waiting for justice. Like those Jewish passengers on that Air France plane in Entebbe. Waiting for justice is hard to do. Waiting for God's justice is difficult. Because it doesn't always play out when and where and how. I'm sure that Esther might have scripted things differently. She probably never would have scripted that she would be swept up into the king's palace, that she would be exploited, that she would have to make all of these ethical compromises. She probably wouldn't have scripted that, that Haman would try to kill all the Jewish people. None of this would have been the plan that they would have conceived. But it's real life nonetheless. One of the most beautiful things about this story, and I think the Bible in general, is that it doesn't present a a sanitized, cleaned-up version of life. It's real. It's raw. It's gritty. Because Christianity is not a pie-in-the-sky escapism. It is a spirituality for the streets. It's a spirituality for everyday life. The people of God are waiting. And they're wondering, where is God? You remember, if you've been with us during this series, you know that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. I think that's an intentional um, feature that the writer is trying to do to help us grapple with the hiddenness of God. It's not that God is absent, but it's that throughout the events of Esther, God is hidden. 
God is good. And oftentimes we feel that way. When our life is not going according to plan. When, when we're having to hire a lawyer that we can't afford to go to bat for us because of some issue in our life. Or some problem at work. Or some diagnosis that you don't think is fair. Or waiting to meet the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. We wait. And we groan. And we wonder, where's God? Is he here? Does he know what I'm feeling? Does he know what I'm experiencing? Does he know how my heart is breaking? That is how Esther and her people felt beginning of the chapter how they still felt at the end of the chapter. Although at the end of the chapter they've got a little bit more hope than they did at the beginning. Now I would love to rush along and finish the book of Esther right now, but we're going to save that for next week. And I just want to wrap up for a couple of minutes by talking about waiting. Specifically waiting for justice. We all have to wait. Waiting is difficult. Waiting is hard. Whether it's waiting for your baby to be born in a few weeks, or whether it's waiting for that promotion, whether it's waiting for housing issues to be resolved, whether it's waiting for a job transfer. Waiting is one of the hardest things in the world. And it's something that God his people to do. In fact, in the psalmist says we are to wait on the Lord. But when we see injustice in the world, when we see bad things playing out in our life or in society or in our neighbors or family or in the church, we want there to be a resolution. We want there to be a fix now. A quick fix. We're an instant society, right? We microwave dinners. We eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast. They take like three seconds to toast. We do it all quickly. Because we ain't got time for something to truly mature. For something to truly develop. But God doesn't ever work on that schedule. I've never found him to work on that instant schedule. He takes his time. He's got his dinner in the slow cooker. Right? And we can, we can smell it. It's coming one day. I don't know if it's today. I don't know if it's tomorrow. But it's going to be really good when it comes. Right? That's what it is to wait on the justice of God. So I want to suggest three simple points of application for us while we wait on God's justice in our lives and in society. First is to come out of the shadows. Here's what I mean by that. Esther lived her life in the shadows. She hid the fact that she was a follower of God. Now there's 600 or so commands that the Jewish people were expected to follow in the Old Testament. In order to get away with her deception, she had to disobey almost all of those commands. Quit observing the Sabbath. Start eating bacon. Some of you don't, don't think that's a, that's a problem. You'd be happy with that. Um, but it was a big deal though, right? All of God's laws were a big deal for his people. And she has to break almost all of them in order to blend in. 
And what happens in chapter 7 is not just that she is willing to reveal her ethnicity. That's important. But bigger than that, she is willing to reveal her religion. I am with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what she's saying. She's coming out of the shadows spiritually to say, I want you to know who I am and what I believe. Some of you may live or work in environments where it's not super popular to be a follower of God. And so you just kind of live and work and play in the shadows. I'm okay with just kind of blending in. I'll do my nine to five. Nobody has to know. And if they do know, we don't really have to have any conversations about it. Let's never get too serious. Let's make sure that religion stays private on the shelf. Esther, in order to save her people, had to come out of the shadows. And God calls us to come out of the shadows too while we wait. Sometimes coming out of the shadows is going to be what it takes for us to engage on issues of justice in our society. Second, stand with the vulnerable. That's what Esther does in this moment. Think about it. She could have survived and lived a happy, long life while all her people got wiped out. Only a handful of people knew who she really was. But she decides to stick her neck out to stand with the vulnerable. I think God calls his people in every generation to do the same. To stand with those on the margins of society. It was anti-Semitism in this passage. It's anti-Semitism in Entebbe. Plenty of anti-Semitism still going around today. There's also... Animosity directed against the poor. I saw someone this week, a very prominent person, who said, the poor have never given any charity to anybody. And I thought, he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Some of the gifts that have humbled me the most have been when those who are impoverished sacrificed to give to me or to those I loved. Immigrants country is not super friendly right now, at least in its rhetoric, towards immigrants. And of course, the unborn that are snuffed out through abortion. We can look into many corners of our society and see whether it's Jews who are having to see swastikas up again at these rallies like what happened in Charlottesville, or whether it's immigrants who are being vilified and called terrorists because they want to come here, or whether it's the poor, or whether it's the unborn. There's probably many other examples as well. God's people are called to step out of the shadows and stand with the vulnerable. That's what Esther does. Eventually, that's what Jesus would do hundreds of years later. We stand with the vulnerable. Third, we wait on God. Just like at the beginning of the chapter, and just like at the end of the chapter. We wait on God because God's justice is worth the wait. Now here's where there's this unresolved tension. Because I just said we have to act. Right? That was my second point of application. We stand with the vulnerable. We do something. And the next point is wait. One sounds pretty active. One sounds pretty passive. And there's a tension there. I admit that. 
And the Bible doesn't ever try to resolve that tension. It tells us, act on behalf of the vulnerable and wait on God's ultimate justice. Because his justice is the best. His justice is the most beautiful. His justice is the most just. God's justice is worth the wait. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., he met injustice face to face many times. Yet in the face of racist governors and voting restrictions, police batons and police dogs, he never gave in to despair. Because he believed, as he famously declared, that the arc of history is long and it bends towards justice. That's true because the arc of history is bending toward God's coming kingdom, a kingdom of justice. We've taken the title for our sermon series in the book of Esther. We've taken the title for this series from Psalm chapter 2, where King David asked a question. He said, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. David wanted to know, why do governments and societies around the world rage against the true king? Esther lived much closer to the beginning of the biblical story than we do. She lived before that Messiah had come, but she was looking forward to the time when the divine hero would arise to rule over the nations with truth and justice. Yet even though she was before the hero and we're after the hero, our situations are not that different. We both live in societies in which the nations rage against the king of kings. We both live in societies that devalue human life and legalize injustice. And like Esther, we have a choice. It's a choice to come out of the shadows and identify with the God who orchestrates history. It's a choice to stand with those on the margins of American society. It's a choice to wait on God because his justice is always worth the wait.